Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. Well, I think partly I'm curious about it because, you know, driving from Vermont to New Hampshire, um, you know, one of the things I really notice is that, like, you cross the state line, it looks different. If you've lived in a state for a long time or grew up there, you probably have this feeling. When you drive into it or out of it, you feel like you can tell the difference, like, right away. It just seems like, oh, now we're in New Hampshire. <laughs> like, you can kind of tell. It's funny. Around here in the valley, the partisans on each side of the river believe that when you drive across the Connecticut, you can feel the fact that, you know, it's different. You can tell you're in New Hampshire. You can tell you're in Vermont. For a lot of people, this is very true for crossings in and out of Vermont. There's a different look. There's no billboards. As someone that was born here and has lived most of my life here, uh, when I'll never forget leaving Vermont as a child and being like, what are these huge signs? Just driving up here, I was like, wow, this is beautiful. The landscapes are beautiful. Burlington is beautiful. For people from out of state, there's also a different perception of what Vermonters are like, what they value. It's just very people-friendly. It's, it's just got anything you're looking for. People are a lot nicer. Uh, they say thank you. Somebody might even hold a door for you. And where I'm from, that doesn't happen. It definitely, there's a very independent spirit that you sense coming here. And it's very, you know, live and let live while at the same time being very conscientious of, of your neighbors and your natural resources. Now, most of this is totally subjective. You could probably find people in every state who say the same things, except for that part about billboards. But when we're talking about a very specific comparison, Vermont versus New Hampshire, you think about like somebody blindfolded you and just plopped you down in the middle of New Hampshire and you took off your, you know, and they said, are you in New Hampshire and Vermont? Could you tell? And I, I always think that I could tell. Well, it turns out there is a very strong foundation for it. It's made out of bedrock. The difference between Vermont and New Hampshire geologically is really based on the history of how they formed. It's a complex story that goes back over a billion years. From Vermont Public, this is Brave Little State. I'm Angela Evansy. Here on the show, we answer questions about Vermont that have been asked and voted on by you, our audience, because we want our journalism to be more inclusive, more transparent, and more fun. Today? What does the geology have to do with the character of Vermont? How do the underlying rocks, soils, topography affect how Vermont is different from other New England states and from New York. And because it's kind of a thing to compare Vermont to New Hampshire, maybe you could say we have a friendly rivalry, we're focusing on this particular cross-border difference. And we're going to trace it all the way back to the Paleozoic era. We made this episode back in 2017. A lot has changed since then, but our geologic history has not. We have support from Vermont Public Sustaining Members. Welcome. 
thanks to Vida for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vida has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. Our question asker this month is named Matt Burgo, but nobody calls him Matt. So my nickname is Beagle, and that's pretty much what everybody calls me. So Okay, sorry, so Beagle. Yeah, that's what, that's what everybody calls me. Where does that come from? Uh, well, actually, from New Hampshire, this uh, on Lake Winnipesaukee, I used to work at this Appalachian Mountain Club camp, and I played the bugle. And the son of the managers could not say the word bugle because he was really small. He was learning to talk. And um, there were a couple other mats there. So as soon as he started to call me Matt Beagle, everyone there was like, oh, nickname. And they called me that. <laughs> so I couldn't shake it. It followed me to college and to jobs. Beagle lives in Heinsberg. He went to Colby College in Maine. And when he was there, he took a few classes in geology. They were just really eye-opening for me, and I really loved them. I just feel like I keep asking those questions anywhere I go. It's kind of like, oh, why are the rocks like this? And that's what got him thinking about Vermont's rocks and how they might have shaped the kind of place Vermont is and made it so different from our neighbors. Beagle was one of the voices we heard at the top of the episode. You cross the state line, it looks different. And because Beagle has that background in geology... Here's where his head goes. So it's like this like snowball effect. So it's kind of like, huh, well, I look at like, well, it looks different. Well, why would it look different? It's like, oh, well, there are more oak trees. Like, why would that be the case? Well, maybe because the soil's different. Oh, yeah, well, the soil is certainly more sandy. And if that's the case, you know, it's like, oh, it's more acidic soil. So then, well, how does that affect the plants, which means agriculture? And if agriculture is different, how does that affect like how people have used the land, natural resources, all of that? So for me, it's kind of like, It all just keeps coming back to, well, what's underlying everything is the geology of it. Beagle is on the right track here. Because the geology of a place obviously affects what it's like above ground. And in the case of these two states, Vermont and New Hampshire, spooning across the Connecticut River, there are some geologic differences that give rise to other differences. My colleague Henry Epp helped report this episode, and he picks it up here. Okay, before we get too far into this, let's make a quick note. There's not a clear dividing line in the geologic or cultural differences between Vermont and New Hampshire. States aren't monolithic. We're talking big picture here. And like we heard at the top of the episode, people have big picture ideas of what Vermont and New Hampshire are all about. But there is something to the idea that the differences between the Granite State and the Green Mountain State go all the way down to the rock below us. Vermont was formed at a different time. The the land base, the rock base of Vermont was formed at a different time than was New Hampshire. That's Steve Trombulak. He's a professor of environmental studies at Middlebury College, and he's the co-author of the book The Story of Vermont, A Natural and Cultural History. To understand the differences in our bedrock, Steve's going to take us back, like way back. Roughly 400 million years ago or so. Steve says that was a very dynamic time period, around 450 million to 320 million years ago. Obviously, I'm painting with a broad brush. You know, we, we've 
throw around numbers of plus or minus 20 million years, which is a very long time. So about 400 million years ago, Vermont and New Hampshire were far apart, separated by an ocean. Vermont was at the edge of a supercontinent. Called Rodinia. Right up to the state's eastern border, about where the Connecticut River now lies. Vermont was coastal property. There wasn't anything to the east of Vermont. Off the coast, there were islands and microcontinents. That were rafting off of proto-Europe and proto-Africa. Those land masses drifted toward what's now Vermont and then slammed into it. And that's what created that eastern section of New England, including New Hampshire. The next key difference between the bedrock and then the mountains in Vermont and New Hampshire is the way in which they formed. To understand that, we need to remember some basic geology. So when we think about if you go back to earth science that you took in ninth grade or even in college. And you remember the layers of the rock, so crust, mantle, core. That's Lori Grigg. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences at Norwich University. Well, the crust is what we call the bedrock, and that's that outer rigid layer. So we're on the continental crust. So the crust, when the land masses that now make up Vermont and New Hampshire collided, like we heard about from Steve Trombulak, Vermont was higher in the crust than New Hampshire. And as a result, the rocks in Vermont have undergone less metamorphism because they were higher in the crust, which is not as hot and not as much pressure as rocks in New Hampshire, which were lower in the crust and kind of more in the center of this continental collision that was occurring. Okay, this is where it gets a bit confusing. Metamorphism means change. And even though Vermont rocks underwent less change, a lot of the bedrock is still referred to as metamorphic rock, whereas a lot of the bedrock in New Hampshire is igneous rock. Lori Grigg has a helpful way of explaining the difference. She calls it the folds versus the blobs. The folds versus the blobs. So the metamorphic rocks that are fairly well beat up in Vermont have been folded. So you can think of if you take a piece of paper and you push it from either side, then it's going to fold into multiple ridges up and down. So essentially, that's what happened. When the ancient islands slammed into what's now Vermont, the land folded up into mountains. All of that slamming into North America. Again, Steve Trombulak. Over a relatively short period of time led to the creation of the Green Mountains and the Taconic Mountains, the Appalachian Mountains, all the way down as far as Alabama. All of that as a result of the ancient collisions. That slamming, then folding up, created the Green Mountains and the long north-south valleys and rivers in Vermont. The Mad River, the Stevens Branch of the Winooski, the Kingsbury Branch, right, Waterbury. Those drainages are following these north-south trending valleys that have been produced by these long linear lines of rock types in Vermont. Meanwhile, in New Hampshire and parts of Vermont's Northeast Kingdom, where the rock was lower in the continental crust, Lori Grigg says there was something bubbling under the surface. In New Hampshire, instead, we've got these lots, many, many big giant blobs of granite, which is a different kind of rock. It's not a metamorphic rock. It's an igneous rock, which means it formed from a magma. Magma is molten rock. And in this case, big blobs of it intruded into the crust and melted part of it. And then everything cooled, forming a different kind of mountains. 
we don't really see these long linear valleys that are kind of the length of the state in New Hampshire because of the big massifs, the White Mountain Massif and other ones. And so the whole weathering pattern and pattern of the topography is really different. So that's what forms the basis of what we see today in Vermont and New Hampshire. The green mountains of Vermont were folded up from a continental collision. The granite of the white mountains formed from blobs of magma bubbling up and cooling. The folds and the blobs eventually shaped human development, too. We'll get to that later. But first, we're going to jump ahead by millions of years to the next big geologic thing in this region that made the landscape the way we know it today, the Ice Age. Starting about two and a half million years ago, ice consumed most of northern North America. So picture this gigantic ice sheet, one to two miles thick, coming down across the landscape. Over the last two million years, Steve Trombulak says, the ice came down from the north, then retreated back, then pushed down again more than a dozen times. A whole lot of what was here was just scraped bare. All that was left was bedrock and scattered boulders. In geologic time, the glacier's final exit wasn't all that long ago. It's thought to have cleared the northern part of Massachusetts by 15,000 years ago, and then ultimately to have cleared off of the northernmost region of Vermont by 13 to 12,500 years ago. And as the ice melted, something interesting happened on the western side of Vermont. The melting water got stuck behind the glacier as it tried to flow north. It's called a proglacial lake. It's a lake that's sitting up against a glacier. The glacier kept melting, but remember, it's one to two miles thick. So all that weight was pushing down the continental crust. But because the crust was so depressed below where it is today, the Atlantic Ocean actually rushed in up the valley that is made by the St. Lawrence River today. Creating an inland sea covering what's now Lake Champlain and the Champlain Valley. So for several thousand years before much of the water drained out, sediment flowed down off the Green Mountains and settled to the bottom of that sea. And you get a thick soil that was nutrient-rich, heavily made up of clays. We see a lot of clay in the Champlain Valley soils today. Now, those of you who are closer to the Vermont-New Hampshire border don't feel left out. There was also a glacial lake in what's now the Connecticut River Valley. And it was Lake Hitchcock. And Lake Hitchcock filled the Connecticut River Valley and many of the tributary valleys, such as the White River Valleys. So after the glaciers, Vermont and New Hampshire were left with their respective bedrock. And remember, this was only about 13,000 years ago. As the bedrock weathered away, it helped create soils. So there are some differences to the soil in each state, too. Lori Grigg says in New Hampshire, it starts with the granite. And when granite weathers out, it's going to produce a lot more quartz, a lot more kind of what you think of as sand. Sandy soils are really well-drained. Sandy soils in New Hampshire, while Vermont has... What we call rich soils. And they're rich soils because they tend to be uh, eroding out of this carbonate-rich bedrock. And those things, calcium, magnesium, potassium, bicarbonate, or carbonate when it's in the soil, are all great nutrients. So that's what's been going on underground. Different bedrock has given way to different topographies and different soil. After the break... On soil and culture. This is Brave Little State. 
Beagle's question was also about the above-ground differences and how geology influences the feel and identity of each place. And to learn more about that, we went to talk to a guy named Chuck Worcester. He's a farmer. My name is Chuck Worcester, and we are at Sunrise Sunrise Farm in White River Junction. I kind of blew that, huh? <laughs> you can take um, it again if you want. Take it again. Uh, my name is Chuck Worcester. We're at Sunrise Farm in White River Junction. Oh, lady, right, gatekeeper. Some of Chuck's CSA members are picking blueberries when we sit down in the shade of his maple sugaring shed. So we could sit right here or we could do chairs or... He tells us he originally came to this area to go to school at Dartmouth. So I studied both my undergraduate in, in uh, geology and then I eventually went back and got a Master of Arts in Liberal Studies to look at how the natural landscapes have affected the cultural landscapes of the two states. So you literally did a Master's like on our episode topic. Yes, I did. <laughs> so glad to be talking to you right now. Chuck has been farming here since 2000, but Sunrise Farm itself is more than 200 years old. It's interesting being a farmer right here because in the Upper Valley, there are farms on both sides of the river. From the New Hampshire perspective, this is like the breadbasket of New Hampshire. And in the Vermont perspective, wait, people are farming over there? You know, so it's this very different moment that we're sort of the forgotten piece of Vermont. And perceptions like this were what interested Chuck when he began studying how the two states' literal landscapes affected their cultural landscapes. And I also, as part of my research into the soils, looked into sort of the political history uh, and some of the cultural differences that sort of got the two states to this place. And now it's at this point that people really select states based on their preconceived values. Vermont, you have uh, a very strong community tradition, a belief in sort of the community informally or the government more formally is uh, something that's available to help solve problems. That's a positive force in people's lives. In New Hampshire, you have much more of a, a sense that, you know, things maybe at the town level should be solved, but really government should be minimal and that that shouldn't be something that we look to for solutions. Now, extrapolating politics from bedrock can be tricky business. But according to Chuck, as far as European heritage goes, a lot of the differences between Vermont and New Hampshire can be traced back to three big factors. One is the soil. One is the coastline. And one is sort of how the glacial history unfolded in the two states. So the soil one is super interesting to me as a farmer. This first one is a review of what we heard from Steve Trombulak and Lori Grigg. The The whole idea that hundreds of millions of years ago, Vermont's bedrock was higher up than New Hampshire's. And this gave way to different soils generally speaking. And so the Vermont soil, the Vermont bedrock is very good for long-term agriculture. On the New Hampshire side, you got much more um, of like harder minerals and things that eventually got turned into granites and and much harder rock, which is not as good for agriculture long-term. Different soil characteristics also influence which trees grow best in each state. Yeah, we think of the iconic trees of the two states, and Vermont, obviously, the sugar maple which plays into the whole tradition of farming and sustainability on the land. The real amazing trees of New Hampshire are white pine and white oak. And it all goes back to that bedrock and how it's weathered. Sugar maple really loves a sweeter soil, which is to say more calcium. And so hence does so well in Vermont and not as well in New Hampshire. Meanwhile, um, white pine in particular, it tends to outcompete other species on the more well-drained acidic sites. Uh, white oak, to some extent, also does better on some of those sites that, that where other trees don't do quite as well. The two other factors Chuck mentioned were coastline and glacial history. 
And he has a pretty interesting theory about how those things eventually shaped how Vermont and New Hampshire approached state government. So if you think back to that inland sea in the Champlain Valley, the one that was created by Ice Age glaciers, Chuck says that after the glaciers receded, it took a few thousand years for the sea to become a lake, Lake Champlain. No more coastal connection. And this happened a few thousand years before the Europeans sailed over to the New World. Now, in human terms, that's a very long time. But in geologic terms, Chuck says it's like a blip. So that sort of seemingly minor detail of of geology ended up occurring right before the Europeans came and sailed to the New World. And so you could have, in fact, if European colonization had occurred, you know, only a few thousand years earlier, they could have actually sailed right into Burlington from Europe. You know what they say, geologic timing is everything. And when the Europeans got here, Vermont's coastline was no more. And then, by the time both our states got around to writing our constitutions in the late 18th century, we were pretty different. At that time, European settlers had lived in New Hampshire for almost 200 years at that point because they had arrived in the very early 1600s and started settling on the seacoast. The white pine and white oak that, like New Hampshire soil, supplied a thriving shipbuilding industry. The white pine was used extensively for masts in the Navy days of of wooden ships, and white oak was the best planking, really, in the world. So in New Hampshire, you actually had a quite diverse population. You had sea captains and merchants and mariners on the coast. You had some farmers moving inland. On the Vermont side, same time period, Europeans had only been living in Vermont for really only 20 years. And the people who lived in that time of of European descent were basically almost all subsistence farmers. Farmers in small communities, tucked into the north-south valleys created by Vermont's folded bedrock. So when the two constitutions were written, they were written very differently because the people writing them were very different. In New Hampshire, Chuck says that factions from various industries wrote a state constitution that made government complicated. And relatively inefficient on purpose. So if your goal is to use government as a tool to solve problems or to drive or affect social change, it's very complicated to do that in New Hampshire. Meanwhile, Vermont, the Constitution was very straightforward. In fact, there was no Senate originally. There was just a house and a governor, and the towns were given extraordinary power, which you've probably heard about. Every town had one vote. So that's Chuck's theory about our state constitutions, that you can trace the different philosophies all the way back to the fact that New Hampshire had a coast when the Europeans arrived and Vermont didn't, even though on a geologic timescale, we almost did. Now, Chuck has another interesting theory. It's about how a kind of geologic politics gave way to one of the most cited differences between our states, the income tax. Vermont has one, New Hampshire doesn't. For this, we fast forward to the early part of the 20th century, during what's known as the Progressive Era. And a lot of states adopted an income tax at that point. And Vermont did so not too long after the flood of 1927. Uh, There was a great need for revenue at that point. And the farmers, who had tremendous power in the legislature because every town had one vote and most towns had farmers, they said, boy, we're going to pass this thing because the folks in Burlington and Rutland are going to have to pay it because they work in the mills, they have income, but we're farmers, we have land. So the income tax passed in Vermont really as a way to try and stick it to the, um, the blue-collar working Democrats in the cities. Around the same time, in New Hampshire, there was also a push for an income tax. 
but it failed. Because of New Hampshire's complicated constitution, state lawmakers couldn't approve an income tax on their own. In the case of New Hampshire, the Constitution says if you're going to change the tax code like that, you actually have to have a statewide referendum. According to the New Hampshire Law Library, it's not technically called a statewide referendum, but yeah, a statewide vote on an amendment to the Constitution. And it needs two-thirds support. So 67%. There are three of these big votes between 1920 and 1930. One gets just over 50% support, and one gets 60% support. Which would have been enough in any other state to have it enacted, but in the case of New Hampshire, it wasn't enough. So, no dice on the income tax. New Hampshire has rejected the tax many more times since then, but Chuck traces those progressive era votes back to the soil. A lot of the uh, people who worked in the mills in Manchester and all down the Merrimack River had a lot of power and were able to turn it back. So that's where that soil made a huge difference. You know, if New Hampshire had had all the farmers, if that power had been vested in them, then presumably then the income tax would have passed at the same time. That's so fascinating. I had no, I've never sort of heard that um, history explained in that way. It's, it is super interesting. And, and now we live in this age of fossil fuel where these types of differences between the states don't really matter. Because, you know, if you're a farmer and your soil is not good, you can buy fertilizer. Um, you can move between states. So those differences become blurred. And now the difference is really cultural, this perception of the two states and how they're different. But there was a time uh, when those details had made a huge difference in terms of you know, creating sort of the government and the social character that we see today. Like Chuck says, a lot of Vermont and New Hampshire's geologic differences eventually became blurred. But some of them persevered. For example, New Hampshire's more blobbed topography made it easier for mills to do business with Boston and New York. Or further away. That's Middlebury College professor Chris McCrory-Kleiza. He's the second author of The Story of Vermont, along with Steve Trombulak, whom we heard from earlier. You know, you could have a, a mill, and we certainly had plenty of textile mills and other kinds of mills in Vermont. They were just never as big as the ones in Nashua or Manchester. Chris points out that because of Vermont's terrain, a lot of places still have that you-can't-get-there-from-here feeling. Southern New Hampshire, it's, it's pretty easy to move kind of east-west, and that's really not true anywhere in Vermont. And Chris says our topography and our roots in agriculture have become a part of something much bigger— our identity. You know, the, the importance of farming culturally, uh, I think today, far supplants it's important economically. But, it, you know, if you read the paper or listen to VPR or uh, follow what's going on in the statehouse, you know, agriculture is very, very important. And I think a lot of that has to do with we are a rural state that wasn't tied to manufacturing or tied to big cities. And that continues to kind of shape who we are, I think. You know, I think that Vermont has a like gentle beauty that's a little bit different than other places that are also beautiful, but I maybe wouldn't use the word gentle to describe them. State character aside, Lori Grigg of Norwich University says our geology has unquestionably shaped the landscape that so many of us respond to when we drive across the state border. We're a really weathered old landscape, and so I think that sort of is what you feel in Vermont. Like, it's like nice and gentle and pretty. <laughs> yeah, not, not too dramatic, not too many sharp edges. No, yeah, nice and rounded and, and, and serene. Yeah. And that makes sense with what's underneath. 
helped report this episode. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you're craving more on this subject, I recommend our 2021 episode about the contemporary beef between Vermont and New Hampshire. We've got a link in the show notes. Steve Trombilak has since retired from Middlebury College. When we asked our question asker Beagle Burgo if he had any updates to share since 2017, he wrote us a nice note. Quote, I can't say the episode spurred me to dig deeper into geology, but I can't but think of it when I'm in Vermont's mountains. When I'm up there, I often think of the contrast between geologic time and how quickly climate change is altering our world. Beagle went on to say that he's a citizen scientist with something called Mountain Bird Watch, which tracks high-elevation birds in the Northeast. Quote, sitting on the bare rocks on top of Mount Mansfield, Beagle wrote, it's hard not to think of how long those rocks have been there and how quickly some of the birds may be gone. My hope is that they'll adapt, but hope can be hard to come by these days. If you have a question about climate adaptation or anything else, ask it at our website, bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can sign up for the BLS newsletter and vote on the question you want us to tackle next. Find us on Instagram and Reddit at BraveStateVT. Lynn McRae edited this episode. I produced it along with Henry Epp and did the mix and sound design. This re-release was supported by my Brave Little State colleagues, Josh Crane, Myra Flynn, and May Nagusky. This episode featured original scoring by Liam Elder Connors, with other music by Poddington Bear and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Our theme music was composed by Ty Gibbons. Special thanks to Andy Friedland, Mary Searles, Paul Romley, John Dillon, and Oliver Riskin Coots. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public. We have support from our station's sustaining members. You can become one at bravelittlestate.org slash donate, or just tell your friends to listen. I'm Angela Evansy. We'll be back soon with more people-powered Vermont journalism. Until then. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.